Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You're listening to the Wijha Initiative podcast. These podcast episodes are recordings of our past events that we hold in person on a weekly basis. We hope that by listening to the podcast, you'll be inspired to join us at an event. To keep up with our work, please follow us on Instagram. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وعملا يا رب العالمين أما بعد. So we're continuing with our discussion on the different topics that are covered in this book with the heart in mind by Sheikh Mikhail Smith. Uh, so this week, inshallah, like for the past few sessions that we've been covering this book, those of you who've been able to attend or listen. You'll notice that the topics are a little bit a little bit technical, philosophical in nature. The first like quarter to a third of the book is like that. And I think it's it's very useful. It's very useful for us to take a moment and reflect on some of these topics. Maybe if you try to read it, it might be a bit it might be a bit too much. And so sometimes, you know, even Sheikh Mikhail, he'll, he'll recommend people go to the second half. Straight to the discussion on emotional intelligence and moral intelligence. Because that stuff, it's a lot simpler, it's a lot more straightforward. But I do want to take some time to discuss some of the, the beginning parts. So today, today I'm going to cover a section and I want to talk a little bit about a section he has. He has a section on the theory of intelligence that was laid out by the great Imam Harith al-Muhasibi Rahmatullahi alayhi Okay, now as I start, let me throw out a book recommendation Let me throw out a book recommendation here And I think all of us could probably benefit from this book It's called A Treatise for the Seekers Treatise Treat I-S-E at the end Treatise, which means like a short, a short book for the seekers. Uh, this is a translation of a book by Al-Imam Harith Al-Muhasibi. Um, this translation was done by, his book is called Risalatul Mustarshidin. This translation was done by Imam Zaid Shakir. And he, adds, he added some notes to it as well. The Arabic book is very, is very well known. Risalatul Mustarshidin is very well known amongst the scholars. Um, it's a book on, we could say, spirituality, uh, a book on asceticism, and so it's very, very beneficial to read. Um, yeah, you could actually do like sessions on that book. So I do recommend you guys order it, buy it from wherever you guys buy books. Um, so the, the, the author, Al-Imam Harith Al-Muhasibi, in this book, with the heart in mind, Sheikh Mikail lays out his theory of intelligence. But let's, to understand, you know, a little bit about why this is even relevant. Why should, why should we care what a Muslim scholar said, you know, 1200 years ago about intelligence? Why is that relevant? So let's kind of pause for a sec. And let's go back to the time of the Prophet ﷺ and the companions. The Qur'an is being revealed to them. 
in the Quran, a word is being used. The word is, it's a verbal form of from aqala ya'qilu. In the Quran, Allah sometimes uses the verb ya'qilun, ta'qilun, ya'qilu, ta'qilu. So you see a pattern here. It's the verb which means to, to use one's intellect, to understand something. The Quran doesn't use the word aql uh, as a noun, aql, which we may translate as intellect. The companions and the Prophet ﷺ, you don't find them engaging in deep conversations and detailed discussions about what is the intellect. You don't see that. In hadith, you're not going to come across a hadith or you know, a narration from a companion where they're talking in depth about the nature of the intellect. They didn't do that. And you'll find that with a lot of things. A lot of the things that the Qur'an would talk about, they understood it. Even if we might, if, even if we might say at a surface level, there was an understanding of it. And there was a practical understanding of what to do with that knowledge. And then there was a practical implementation of that knowledge. Now, as time went on, the Prophet ﷺ passes away. The time of Abu Bakr an, then the time of Umar an, Islam is spreading. It's spreading. It's spreading. And as it begins to enter into different lands, the Muslims, as they enter and conquer those lands, they find that the inhabitants and the people living in those lands had really different ideas. The way they thought about things, the way they conceptualized things was very different from the Islam that they believed in. Right? And so they came into contact with Greek teachings, you know, teachings of Greek philosophers, um, from Roman writers, Persian writers, they're interacting with all these, all these, this whole intellectual tradition or multiple intellectual traditions of different civilizations. Now you have, to, you, have to, you have to pause here and say, okay, how do the Muslims interact with that? So here's an example. Muslims would enter a land. They would discover writings of the Greeks. These writings of the Greeks would contain a lot of Different, different, you know, you could say discussions about, for example, Aristotle, he'll talk about, he'll talk about the intellect. He'll come up with a whole theory of the intellect. You have Plato, then you have Socrates, right? You have different philosophers and they've written books and now Muslims see all that, what are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to do? One approach might be to just burn it all. This is all un-Islamic stuff, get rid of it, boom, burn it all. The Khalifa, and there were many caliphs in the Abbasids, amongst them, one of them was by the name of Abu Ja'far al-Mansur. Abu Ja'far al-Mansur, he loved knowledge. He had a passion for knowledge. And so what he did was he took his money, right, the wealth that he had, and he spent a lot of it on translating these works into Arabic so that Muslim scholars could read them. And when he passed away, he, his brother Mahdi took over the role and also continued this job of translation. This came, this came to be known as the translation movement. 
If you guys want to read more about this, I'm not going to go into detail. If you want to read more about it in a simple, simple way, not a really technical academic way, you could read it in the works of a man by the name of Peter Adamson. He has a book called A History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. Right? This is, this is, and he talks about how so much of what we have today from like Greek philosophy, so much of that was preserved by Muslims. That the Christian world had lost it because they had been conquered. They lost it. The Muslims had translated it into Arabic and thereby preserved it. The Muslims didn't just preserve it though. Then the Muslims started writing commentaries on it. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But if you want to read more, that's one reference I'll give you. Another, if you want to read, is by Jonathan Lyons. It's called The House of Wisdom. The House of Wisdom. This is in reference to what was famously known as Baytul Hikmah. Baytul Hikmah is famously, and it's amongst Muslim scholars, you know, many of them will be aware of this, a, an institution dedicated to the study, to the study of knowledge, but not just Hadith and Quran but also astronomy, mathematics, you know, physics. All of this would be considered natural, natural philosophy, what would be known as falsafa. Okay, all of this is being translated. So you're getting all these ideas. See, I mentioned that in the Qur'an, the word ya'qinun and ta'qinun, all this, this is being mentioned. About 49 times we get this in the Qur'an. This verb, ya'qinun. From the same, from the same root, But we don't get an explanation of what the intellect is. The Quran does not give us that—a detailed explanation of the nature of the intellect. Greek philosophers, for a long time, had been theorizing about what the intellect was like. So they had their theories. Here's the question now. I want to ask you guys for a moment to pause. When Muslims in, came into contact with these theories, right? So Aristotle has a theory. Plato has a theory. What do you do with it? And it's explaining the intellect. Do the Muslims reject it? Say, this is not from the Quran, so we reject it? This is not in the Hadith, so we reject it? Do they accept it? What do you think? What would you do? Right. So this is where it gets interesting because, because you find scholars kind of split into different camps here. And broadly speaking, broadly speaking, let's put them into two camps. One camp would be the camp that would reject all of this. And say, listen, we don't need all of this. This is all nonsense. This is all hair-splitting discussions. This is all extra stuff. The Quran and the Sunnah is enough for us. We don't need all of this. So we're not going to learn it. Many would even badmouth it and say, look, you're not supposed to study this stuff. Because if you, get, if you start getting into this stuff, then you might neglect the Quran and the Sunnah. And, sometime, and, and obviously, if you think about it, the Greek philosophers were not basing their theories and their ideas on any revelation. It was based on pure, pure intellectual inquiry, independent of revelation. That's what it was. And so the scholars feared that people would become too influenced by this, that they would begin to turn their backs on, on revelation. And their fears were not, were not, 
they were not unfounded. It, 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 there was a basis to it. Because a group of people came about that came to be known as the rationalists, the Mu'tazilites. These are people who really believed in the supremacy of intellect. To the point that if something in Revelation doesn't make sense, we reject it. That the intellect will dictate to us. And the intellect is sufficient to determine what is good, what is bad, what is right and wrong. They really put the intellect at a high level. I don't want to get into it. And this led to them theological debates and stuff. The other camp, the other camp of scholars, they said no. Just because it's not the Qur'an and the Sunnah doesn't mean we're going to reject it. Rather, we're going to analyze it. And you could say for two main reasons. One reason they would analyze and study it is so that they would take that which was beneficial from it. If there's something of benefit to be taken, let's take it. And it was not uncritically taken. It was definitely with criticism, with a you know, real scrutiny, they would examine whether or not this idea was acceptable and in line with our Islamic teachings. The second reason why they would study it was to refute it if there was a need to. See, the, the thing there was, what they were trying to say is, listen, oh, you scholars who don't want to interact with this stuff, you don't want to read this stuff, you say no, Quran and Sunnah only. They would say, look, you don't want to read this stuff? Okay. But the average person, they're reading it right now. We have plenty of Muslims who are reading this stuff. They're getting influenced by it. Who's going to correct them? Who's going to rectify their thinking? In order to be able to do that, you must understand it and study it. And so among them was this scholar, Al-Imam Harith Al-Muhasibi. He became known, if you ask people about him, or scholars about him, he's most famous for his piety and as somebody who was a great ascetic. However, however, he was also a scholar of kalam, a scholar of theology, because he studied the works of the philosophers, and then he used their own strategies and techniques to refute them. That was his approach. Do you get where I'm coming from? And that's why you find some scholars of his time disliking him, or at least keeping a distance from him. Among them was the great Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahmatullahi alayhi. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, maybe some of you have heard of him as one of the Imams of the Madhabs. You know, on one occasion, he came to a gathering, he listened to the advice and the preaching of Imam Hadith al-Muhasibi that we're going to talk about, and he was moved to tears. Because it was such a powerful discourse, a powerful lecture. And afterwards, when someone asked him about him, he said, MashaAllah, that was a powerful lecture, but stay away from this man. Because he disagreed with the approach that this Imam took. And not only this Imam, many, many scholars took this approach. Among them was the great Imam al-Ghazali, rahmatullahi alayhi. Later on, it was the great Imam al-Fakhruddin al-Razi, rahmatullahi alayhi. This is something, like you could talk a lot about this idea of Muslims not shying away from foreign ideas. Number one though, before, they, before anything, they always knew their tradition first. We have people today who, with a noble intention, they mean well. They say, you know, I'm going to go into this field, and inshallah, I'm going to make an impact as a Muslim. It's a noble intention, mashallah. You know, I want to represent myself as a Muslim in this field. 
Maybe share some contributions of Muslims. Maybe bring an Islamic ethics to the, to the, to the field. But you need to know your tradition. You need to know what your deen says. And not just at a surface level of how to pray and stuff. Because you want to you interact and engage with a high-level academic field. You can't bring, you know, Sunday school Islam to that academic field. You have to bring a high level of, of, of discourse within the Islamic tradition to the table. But then the question becomes, how many people have that? How many average Muslims, how many average university students, you know, master's students and PhD students, how many of them really have such a deep understanding of Islam that they can then sit at the table with people in their field and really contribute from the Islamic perspective? How many? And so some of you might say, well then, what do you expect? Like if someone's dedicated their lives to pursuing a PhD, when, when do you expect them to have time to go and study like Islam in depth? Well, one way is part-time. That's one option. But, you know, even the, even the options of part-time are very few. But another approach is collaboration. And this is what I want to encourage you guys, because maybe some of you have this aspiration. You know that I'm in this field and I really want to try to contribute in some way as a Muslim to this field. If you have that, like I said, you have to know your religion. You cannot haphazardly and at a surface level present something on behalf of Islam. Because then it just looks half-baked. And it's a misrepresentation. What you'd rather do is work closely with Islamic scholars who know that field well. Now how many of you, for example, have heard of the Khalil Center? Khalil Center? Now there's a branch in Toronto. The original branch is in Chicago. The, the main man behind it, Dr. Human Keshar Varzi, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a clinical psychologist. He's not trained extensively in the Islamic tradition, you know, to the level of a strong scholar. He's not. He's, he studied, mashallah, absolutely studied part-time, you know, with scholars. He's done that. But he's not at a level of a fully trained, full-time scholar, no. But at the Khalil Center, right now they're doing groundbreaking work in bringing an Islamic framework and paradigm to the field of psychology. How are they doing it though? Remember, Dr. Human didn't have the time to go and study seven years or ten years somewhere in Egypt or the Middle East or some other South Asian country or somewhere where he could learn Islam. That's not what he did. What he did was he partnered and he not even partnered, really collaborated with the local institution in Chicago, Darul Qasim College. And in collaboration with them, constantly taking his questions to those scholars, presenting them, and then going back and writing what he write, wrote, right? Like now they've even published, a, um, through Rutledge, they published a whole textbook on Islamic psychology. This was all done in consultation with scholars. Right? The scholars could not write that textbook because they don't have the expertise in psychology. But then the psychologists also couldn't write it you know, in, in, a really, um, in a really concrete and solid way without the help and support of those scholars. And so really this is a time, I think, 
you know, of collaboration. We need to collaborate and work together um, in order to contribute new findings. Right now, example, in Stanford, you have Dr. Rania Awad. Her contributions to the field of mental health right now, mashallah. She has a lab there at Stanford, the Muslim Mental Health Lab, where she conducts research, right? She is really trying to bring back this understanding of Islamic um, hospitals. That in the Islamic world, in the Muslim world, what, what were hospitals like? What did they contain? Because that's holistic wellness that incorporates spirituality. So she has what's called Maristan. This is discussion about how Muslims, how they built you know, mental health institutions, how they built hospitals. This is groundbreaking work that a lot of people have never heard of. A lot of people have not heard of. Even in the field. This is only possible when you work with scholars in close collaboration with scholarship. Anyways, so I just wanted to throw that out there. In the past, you had scholars who were fully versed in the Islamic tradition, in like Quran, Hadith, Tafsir, all of that. But they would be also fully versed in what's called falsafa, natural philosophy. That, at that time, that included, you know, like I said, physics and astronomy and chemistry, all, biology, all of this. That's why Imam al-Ghazali has a book where he highlights the divine wisdom in the creation of human beings. This was recently translated. If you want to buy this book, I highly recommend. Especially if you're in, if you're in the medical field. This is Imam al-Ghazali about a thousand years ago. Just writing about human anatomy, human biology. And then not just describing it like a textbook. No, speaking about the divine wisdom. And how we can recognize God through the study of biology and human anatomy. That's, the, that's, the, that's what it's dedicated to. Now it's been translated. You can go by it. It's called, I think, Divine Wisdom and the Creation of Man. It's translated by a doctor, Dr. Kamran Riaz. Another person associated with Darul Qasim College. The point I'm trying to make here is this, that scholars in the past were really polymaths. They were experts in, in multiple fields. So they critically engaged with whatever they came across. Al-Imam Halif al-Muhasibi is one of them. So, when he, when he read, example, what the Greeks wrote about in the intellect, Imam al-Ghazali, his theory of the soul, greatly informed by Plato. His theory of ethics, greatly informed by Aristotle. Why? Because the Qur'an and the Hadith don't always explain in great, great detail what these virtues are. It'll, it'll tell us. Pride, if you have an iota of pride, an atom's weight of pride in your heart, you will enter, you will enter, you will not enter paradise. If you have that, even that much pride. Okay, but what is pride? One hadith tells us pride is to reject the truth and to look down on people. Okay? But like, how do I know I have pride? How do I get rid of pride? What are signs of pride? They're not always mentioned in hadith. They're not always mentioned. I'm, I'm just saying the example of pride. But what about courage? What is courage? How do you develop courage? What are the signs of courage? What's the opposite of courage? The, you know, we know courage is a good thing. But like, what actually constitutes courage? That's not always explicitly spelled out in the Quran and hadith. 
And so then Muslim scholars turned to other theorists and said, hey, what do you have to say about this? Aristotle, a long, famous, till today it's studied, his Nicomachean Ethics, a detailed explanation of these virtues. Imam al-Ghazali, to a large extent, took that. He took it after someone before him took it. Al-Imam Radib al-Asfahani. Al-Imam Radib took it from someone before him as well. Um, I, be, I believe it was Mishkawai. His Tahdib al-Akhlaq. And the Muslims continued to pass on this teaching about virtue ethics that was rooted in Aristotle. Rooted in Aristotle. And Muslims continued to pass on it. Even after Imam al-Ghazali. Nasiruddin al-Tusi would come along. Al-Imam Aduddin al-Iji would come along. People would come. Al-Imam Tash Kubri Zada would come along. And they would write books on this, all in a line of tradition of Aristotelian virtue ethics. You know what's crazy? If you study any philosophy course here, they'll never mention it. They'll never talk about it. And they'll never acknowledge it. And Muslims will sit there and hear Western thinkers and be like, wow, Hume was amazing, and Locke was amazing. Come on. Right? I remember meeting a Muslim, he told me, uh, he studied philosophy. I said, why do you study philosophy, man? He said, I was looking for the truth. I said, man, so you study Western philosophy, of all things? Just Western? Like you had no concern about thinkers and, and, and you know, theories from anywhere else in the world? SubhanAllah. Do you understand? And so sometimes we can develop this inferiority complex. And you know what's crazy? I told you, I, said, I think I mentioned this last week. In so many of your courses, when they start the history of the, of the subject, they start with the Greeks. And they act like they are the inheritors of that tradition. You know, like we, the West, we are inheritors of this Greek tradition. No, you're not. History clearly shows you're not. You're indebted to the Muslims who translated it into Arabic and preserved it. And later on, it was then back tra translated into Latin that you were able to get it. Because it was lost within the Christian world to a large extent. And so when I sit there and I hear them talk about it, I kind of shake my head and go like, y'all are so lost. Al-Imam Harith al-Muhasbi, anyways, when he starts talking about the intellect, right, he begins to develop some ideas about it. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Just to show how Muslims started thinking about a detailed explanation of a word that was used in the Quran. Ya'qilun, to, to understand. What does that mean? What are we referring to when we say Ya'qilun or Ta'qilun? Where does that Ya'qilun take place? How does it take place? Are there stages and steps to it? So Imam Hadith al Muhasibi wrote a book on this called Mahiyatul Atal. The, you could say, the, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Sorry? Yeah, the essence of the intellect. So he's really trying to break down what the intellect is. So he says, and he breaks it down into like three levels. He says, at the first level, the intellect, when a person possesses the in an intellect or intellectual capacity, what they're able to do is they're able to differentiate between things. They can tell that this is different from that, this is different from that. They're able to um, you know, separate things and distinguish things from one another. Um, and then even identify them, identify them. And he said within the first level, you know, you have three main 
uh, tasks that the intellect will help a person with. Number one is the intellect helps a person speak. It helps a person speak. Because speech is the expression of the ideas that you possess. Then it helps a person deduce. You know, deduction. That you can draw conclusions from multiple ideas. So if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A is equal to C. And it's like, you don't even know what A or B or C are, but you can make that deduction. The intellect can do that. And we do that, right? Um, as we go through life. Well, if, if that's closed, then that must be closed and that might be open. And we start rationally coming to conclusions about things. And then finally, he says, the intellect allows for choice. It allows for the ability for the human to see something and pick it. Based on, now you have two other levels he talks about. The second level is he calls fahm. Beyond just that basic ability to comprehend things and to conceptualize things, you reach a level now where you're able to appreciate the reality of things. So a young child, right? A young child, if you allow them, they would just eat candy all day, every day. I'm telling you from experience with my child. If I let him, he will eat candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. For sahur, for iftar. All day, every day. Candy? Absolutely. He doesn't understand the true nature of, of sugar, of candy, what it does to a person. As you get older, even when what? Even when you desire candy, you have the ability to say, No, I will not eat this. It's not good for me. You're able to restrain yourself. The word aql, it comes from the same meaning as restraining. You ever heard the hadith? Many of you will have heard the hadith that tie your camel and trust Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'qilha. The word used there is i'qilha. From the same root letters of aql, i'qilha wa tawakkal. No, tie your camel and trust in Allah. For the word tie, the Prophet ﷺ used aql, the root letters. Because it has that meaning of restraining and tying something and preventing it from going forward. Do you get where I'm coming from? So one of the jobs of the aql is to pull a person back from their desires. Is to pull a person back from that which is harmful for them. A young child's aql has not developed to the point where they can restrain themselves, right? Now, you can train them, you can train them, and maybe over time they'll develop that capacity. Because a lot of you are thinking about the marshmallow test, aren't you? You're like, well, what about that? You know, like a child sitting there and trying to hold himself back from marshmallows, right? Anyone ever tried that with their siblings? Or like, anyone? I'm going to try that with my kids. I'll let you know how it goes. You know what I mean? Marshmallow test on them. See what happens. Halal marshmallows, don't worry. Um, yeah, so to hold back, um, an adult is able to go beyond just you know, identifying things and begin to actually see things for what they are. They know it looks good, but it's actually harmful. You see, you know, a child sees uh, candy. It's like, uh, that's, that's what I want. You offer them a check of money. Uh, who wants paper? I want the candy. The human who gets older recognizes, wait, I could buy like a thousand of those candies with this piece of paper. 
And so the human begins to see things not just for how they appear, but for their reality of what they truly are. Their significance in this world. And finally, he talks about what he calls basira, the third level of the intellect. That the intellect is able to engage in what's called basira. Basira comes from the same root letters as vision. You know, like when you can see something. So you have absar, basar, which is to see. But basira is different. It's like the seeing of the heart, the seeing of the intellect. Because your eyes will see something. But what does your heart see? That's why Allah in the Quran says, فَإِنَّهَا لَا تَعْمَلْ أَبْصَارِ There are some people, their eyes are not blind. They can see things of the world with their eyes. وَلَكِنْ تَعْمَلْ قُلُوبُ الَّتِي فِي الصُّدُورِ But rather, the hearts that are in their chests, they've gone blind. If those hearts have gone blind, it means they had a vision, a basira, an ability to see things. And, and Imam al-Muhadith al-Muhasid explains that Basira is not just seeing things for what they are in, a, in, in the worldly sense. Right? It's not just seeing that candy will give me cavities. It's seeing that this action is detrimental for me in the hereafter, in the grand scheme of things. You know, like seeing not just the implications of an action in this world, but even after death. And probably more importantly after death. Do you get where I'm coming from? And many of us will say, yeah, you know, like, think about, here's an example. There's, there's an opportunity for, to commit a sin. A person sees the opportunity. They recognize, if I commit this sin, it'll harm me. It'll harm me. In this dunya. It's not a, it's not a good, it's not a healthy sin. Okay. Do they recognize its harm in the grand scheme of things? Are they aware of that? Does that? Because sometimes people will say, well, apparently that doesn't seem so bad. Here's an example. If you lie and it doesn't hurt anybody, is it wrong? It didn't hurt nobody. Nobody even knew. It didn't hurt nobody. Nobody was harmed by it. Is it bad? Is it wrong? Of course it is. And you might say, but, but there's no dunyavi implications. There's no implications in this world. But that's because you're only thinking at the second level. What about when Allah commands us to be truthful? Commands us to be truthful, to speak the truth. What about that? What about disobeying Him even though nobody is harmed? But by speaking a lie, I have disobeyed my Lord. Is that not harm enough? What greater harm do you want than that? But only people of spiritual insight think along those lines. Do you get it? You know, like when someone's about to do something wrong, they look around, that they're looking for the worldly implications. Will anybody catch me? A person of Basira doesn't look around. They recognize, my Lord is always watching me. Do you understand? So he says, the goal, the goal really of the intellect is in a sense twofold. It's to, for a person to apply their intellect to not just see things, not just recognize the worldly consequences, but to be aware and present. Rather, to, be pre to, to keep present the consequences in the hereafter. The greater consequences that we will have to face, all of us will have to face after we pass away. 
And to, to, to try to use your intellect to, to remain cognizant of that. And then if you can do that, you should be able to restrain yourself from that which is wrong. You should be able to push yourself towards that which is good for you. Do you get that? Does that make sense? Like if you don't pray Fajr tomorrow, who's harmed? Who's harmed? Did someone lose sleep because you didn't pray Fajr? No, it's not apparent that that's the case. No one seems to be harmed by that. In this world at least. But the believer is not just looking for a do no harm in this world kind of principle. That's not what they're living by. They're thinking about the hereafter. How does this action count on the grand scoreboard on the Day of Judgment? Do you get where I'm coming from? And that's meant to be what the intellect really pushes for. An awareness and an understanding of that. And one way to do that, I'll just give you an example. One way to do that is, have you ever been so caught in a problem? Something's going on in life, things just seem to be getting worse and worse. And you're, you know, your anxiety levels are going up and you're stressed. And someone comes and like kind of pulls you back and says, Yo, take a breath and this too shall pass. Life's going to go on. Yeah, it's not, it might not be the way you want it to go, but, but, but life will go on. You know, there's a, there's a great... You, you have a whole life that you live. It's not just this one little moment in your life. Step back. Recognize how, how vast and grand life is. And you have, you, know, you have a family around you, and they start enumerating all these good things going for you, and you're like, oh yeah, that's true, man. I was making this little problem into everything. Like, it was my whole world. That person got you out of that mindset and said what? No, 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 hold up. Don't get stuck in this thing, in this little situation. Step back and see the bigger picture. And SubhanAllah, that's so powerful. How many of you experienced that with like a friend who did that for you? In that moment where they just kind of, you know, snapped you out of your of, you know, obsessive and narrow focus on that situation. And said, just, just take it easy. You know, life is greater. It's not the end of the world. Classic line, right? It's not the end of the world. Life will go on. And, and life did go on. Do you get where I'm coming from? So, to be able to do that, that's, that's the role of the intellect. So how many of us are intellectuals? How many of us are intellectuals? It depends on which definition you're using. If it's just a master's degree or a PhD to be an intellectual, we got plenty. How many of them are cheating on their wives or on their husbands? What did the intellect do for them? Do you understand? That's a very different theory of intelligence there. That intelligence is not just being able to like quickly uh, understand and process information. No. It's that it takes you to the reality of things and it helps you understand their deep, deeper significance. And once you get there, you should, be, you should feel compelled to act. You should feel compelled to act. And if you don't feel compelled to act, then there might be a deficiency in your basira, in your understanding of the reality of the situation. And so we're going to speak, inshallah, going forward about, you know, you could say more modern theories of intelligence. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference in how we think about them. Muslims always spoke about knowledge coupled with action. Like a discussion of knowledge is incomplete in the Islamic tradition without speaking of action. Whereas today, so much of what we learn is not, has, is, it's not related to any practical 
behavior in your life. Even the things that you learn, tell me, what do you do with them? You apply them on the job, isn't it? When do you apply them in your life? That they transform you into a better person? Do you get what I'm trying to say here? Like, did all that coding make you a better person? You came back transformed, mashallah, into like a really ethical human being after studying JavaScript. And I'm not trying to bash JavaScript. I'm just trying to say there's a very big difference in how we think about knowledge today and intellectual information today and in the past where Muslims always focused on its, the transformative power of knowledge. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us tawfiq to really engage with our tradition and appreciate uh, its significance and its contributions and may He make some of us at least uh, those who will carry on this legacy of the Islamic tradition and contribute uh, from our perspective that which we believe to be a means of salvation in this world and the next. Ameen ya Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa likullin wujhatun huwa muwaliha fastabiqu al-khayrat أينما تكونوا يأتي بكم الله جميعا إن الله على كل شيء قدير